0: Welcome to Follow the Moneyball, a podcast at the intersection of sports and money.
1: Here's your host, David Sloan. I'm David Sloan, and I have opinions. I also have 44 years of experience as an agent for MLB players that back those opinions up. My guest today is Ricky Vellante, entertainment and sports lawyer, coming back for his second guest shot on the Follow the Moneyball podcast. Um, Ricky is not only a brilliant entertainment and sports attorney, he is my brilliant entertainment and sports attorney. So Ricky, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great, David. And I appreciate the kind introduction.
1: I speak the truth. I speak only the truth. So, uh, when, when we spoke last time, we talked a lot about, um, your background and how you got into the business of being, a uh, uh, sports and entertainment attorney. Now moving forward, um, there's a few things that I think I'd like to discuss. I believe you'd like to discuss them as well. And I think the listeners would like to hear them as well. Um, the the first issue that comes to mind is the recent news that has come across uh, the interwebs about um, private equity firms getting involved in name, image, and likeness deals, um, uh, with college athletes. I think that is an area that is brought with the potential for uh, abuse and corruption as is anything and everything involving collegiate sports and always has been. Uh, I'd like to get your take on it and where you see the, the benefits and pitfalls moving forward in that particular area.
0: Yeah, so I think that there's two different elements that are going on here. So on one side, you have the collectives and agencies that have begun handling or representing uh, matters for college athletes in the name, image, and likeness space. And, you know, there's been considerable competition in that area. There's a lot of tech components to it, especially when you look at companies like Open doors. um, And so there's a natural inclination whenever there's anything tech related for uh, private equity firms to start taking notice. So, you know, that could end up in a roundabout way benefiting college athletes because as these technologies get better and better, theoretically, it may, you know, increase exposure for those athletes and the ability for them to work with brands. Um, if the platforms are able to continue to improve and offer additional services and things like that on the other side is the recent news that private equity firms are now looking into doing fundraising with and on behalf of college athletic departments with uh not too far from you guys i guess a little little bit of a, a drive still but florida state um, and J.P. Morgan, exploring the possibility of J.P. Morgan doing a P.E. deal on behalf of Florida State's athletic department so that they can continue to to grow and fund additional uh, operations and more expansive operations. And, you know, there, there's always the possibility that with these things, you know, bad actors can come along. I think that uh, for me, a more concerning and pressing matter uh, being somebody that has worked with college athletes and been um, you know a staunch supporter of of the rights of college athletes is how is if these private equity firms and athletic departments do end up working together and doing these these private fundraising elements that that are being considered how is this not professional sports at that point and why are these athletes not being treated as professional athletes and and garnering the, complete suite of rights that college, that not college athletes, but professional athletes have, Um, you know, if you do have what could be hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in fundraising efforts by PE firms on behalf of college athletic departments and by uh, banks like JP Morgan, again, I, I I know that there is a convoluted legal argument to be made that it's still in some weird way, may, maybe not uh, professional sports. But I think from a functionality standpoint, it, it it doesn't hold water today, but it certainly doesn't hold any water for me if you have these PE firms getting involved with athletic departments in that way.
1: But Ricky… Why should people who are effectively working two full-time jobs at the age of 17, 18 to the age of 22, 23, why should they gain the benefit of things like workman's compensation if they're hurt and better insurance and retirement benefits? They certainly don't deserve it. I mean, all of that money. Necessity. The necessity is that it go only to the coaches and administrators. Isn't that the way that this has always worked so well for everyone concerned in NC2A sports? He said very sarcastically. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that it it has, I think the term you used, the potential for abuse perhaps. I would phrase it differently. I would say the inevitability of abuse and corruption. Because if you go back and look at the history of the NC2A, I don't think that you could point out a single year where that particular issue, corruption and abuse, did not exist. But I'll climb off of my soapbox now and uh, get back to the main subject here. Um, another issue that I'm not sure that, that people are necessarily aware of, um, name, image, and likeness is bleeding into college baseball. Mm-hmm. And college baseball is generally not thought of as a revenue sport but teams are expanding their facilities and also their recruiting efforts. And this is becoming a way where it's always been a, a fight, if you will, between the colleges and the pro teams that are drafting players, because uh, the guys that are first round draft choices and are going to be offered six, $7 million to go in pro ball out of high school It's not going to be a factor in terms of their recruitment, but a kid coming out of high school who's offered, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars, which for an 18 year old kids, quite a bit of money. But when a college comes to them and says, we can do that every year, you're here while you're continuing to play ball, get at least three years of an education and be drafted again after your junior year. That's a very tempting opportunity. And the way that I know about this is through a relationship that I won't go into uh, in detail, I am familiar with a player who was drafted just this past year, this past summer, and did not sign and is actually going to a D1 school and getting a fairly substantial amount of NIL money in order to effectively compensate him for the money that he walked away from. Now, not only does this cause a problem with the colleges and the the be pro teams but you mentioned agencies getting involved in an IL money the major league baseball players association hardly a paragon of virtue has regulations and I'm using air quotes when I use the term that govern player agents that say nothing of a material nature can be conveyed by an agent to an athlete to convince him to become or remain a client of that particular agency how do you feel that issue can and should be dealt with, counselor.
0: Man, we are conflating a whole bunch of different things together that are all interdependent on one another. Because I mean, even what you just laid out, think about how it could impact one baseball going forward. Think about how realignment in college sports is going to impact the more traditional non-revenue sports in college. You know, what if Stanford Accepts and and joins the ACC, and now all of a sudden Stanford's baseball team is going to you know UVA for a weekend, <laughs> um, you know, and and Florida State the next weekend, and and all of that. So it, it you know we are careening. We, I think we've again, I think we've been there for a long time. But even the staunchest of amateur sport supporters, I think, would start to realize that we are careening towards a wildly professionalized model where what you're talking about right now, that's going to end up impacting the pipeline of talent flowing into minor league baseball, which, you know, I think we're roughly six years away from the first window in which major league baseball can take another look at the minor league system under the one baseball charter agreement. Um, And what happens if, the bulk of, again, as you said, beyond those first thirty guys who are going to get that seven-figure signing bonus. <clears throat> what if we're in a world where, outside of them, everybody else is going through to their junior and senior year in college? You know, how sustainable are those minor league teams? Do the MLB does the MLB want to have a single A and a double A layer of players who probably won't amount to much? or exclusively international signings um, because everybody's turning down (laughs) their contracts through through the MLB draft because they're getting better NIL deals. I mean, and then the other part on the NIL side, you're talking about the amounts that these schools are paying because of the restrictions around compensation to college athletes. I think, again, regardless of what side of the table you're on in terms of college athletes' rights and compensation and things like that, NIL is pulling double duty. NIL is functioning as direct compensation for these players only because of the rules and the restrictions. I think if we were in a world where athletes could be paid directly, college sports would look a lot like professional sports where somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 80% of an athlete's income is their salary. And the remainder is what they make through endorsement deals, appearances, autograph signings, things like that. The only reason that 100% of athletes' revenue in, in college sports is purely on that endorsement side is because they can't be paid directly <laughs> by, by the rules. So like again, NIL is is functioning as compensation and NIL, and that's why we're seeing the big, big numbers that we're seeing in NIL deals because they're overinflated, because it's functioning as compensation too.
1: Right. Well, one thing that you can count on is that whatever solution um, is available, um, the NC2A will fuck it up entirely and pick the least tenable, least sustainable uh, solution possible. Uh, Let me ask you a question. The, The scenario that you just outlined in regard to players in baseball skipping signing with professional teams and going to college and, and the structure that that would inevitably uh, create is that manifestly different from the model that football has been using since day one. No, I mean that exactly what happens with, with professional football. The colleges are effectively their minor leagues.
0: Um, exactly. I mean, and, and I know that there's some elements with football because of the, you know, repetitive head trauma and impact and all that stuff that m- having minor league teams are just more complicated from a legal and an insurance perspective. But yes, wh- what we could end up with, and it's happening in basketball. It's been yes. happening in basketball for the last three years now where because of entities like the G League Ignite and OTE and now the universities coming to the table with these expansive NIL deals, uh, you're seeing more and more players stay in school or some sort of alternative for longer because they can make as much or more money on those paths and still be on the path to the professional ranks. So rather than being a guy that maybe jumps too early into the NBA ranks and is going to sit on the bench and, you know, maybe get 10 or 15 minutes a night, he can continue on in whatever alternative he's in, make more money and be playing, you know, 30 to 40 minutes a night, <laughs> which will only benefit them, uh, you know, as a whole, theoretically will only benefit them as time goes on. Now it is interesting that you bring up football because I forget which coach it was. I want to say think it might have been, um, the Falcons head coach, somebody just within the last week said that the NFL needs to explore having a minor league system. And I, I think it was the Falcons head coach and, and really, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. And it was, um, cause they were talking about quarterbacks, I believe in particular, and, and basically, you know, it, it was kind of all not directly but loosely tied to trey lance and how you know a guy like trey lance might have benefited from having some sort of minor league structure where he could have come in had continuous playing time under you know the the watchful eye of team shanahan and lynch uh, in a minor league context, and continue to develop, rather than what ended up happening, where now you know he's the third string quarterback for the for the Cowboys. Um, so yeah, that again, I, there's all kinds of complicated elements to having a minor league football structure, but it, it was still interesting to me that and and caught my eye when I saw that that a you know one of the 32 NFL head coaches just last week said we should explore. A minor
1: league option well and you know i'm certain that he only did that out of the goodness of his heart as opposed to him having the opportunity to have access to better players that's that's certainly not his his interest um you you, you mentioned the uh, pro teams now and and that brings up something that kind of dovetails with what we were talking about earlier in regard to private equity uh, companies um as exemplified recently by the purchase of the Washington let's call them commanders Um, teams are leagues rather are going to have to begin at least contemplating changes to their rules in regard to the way that purchases and ownership of teams are structured because um, the big issue used to be the amount of debt involved in the purchase and ownership of a team Um, and it used to be where baseball only individuals could own teams. They loosen those rules up a bit, but not very much. What's your take in terms of the possibility in the future of our seeing teams, not only owned by private equity team, uh, uh, excuse me, private equity companies, but corporations and, or also foreign entities and in getting involved.
0: Yeah, it's, I spoke about this at a conference in London last uh, September and the whole panel, we were looking at different elements around sport ownership and things and and where we kind of ended up at the end and uh, paraphrasing what my, my closing contribution was to the panel, which was that going forward with the way that valuations are spiking, especially in US professional sports, but globally, we're starting to see. Um, they're, even the 1% can't afford to drop $6 billion on an NFL team or on a professional sports team. And those numbers are only going to continue to increase. I mean, we have uh, China and the NBA, their frosty relationship is starting to thaw a bit. And as that happens and viewership starts to increase in China, I mean, uh, a random weekday game that might rate you know a million a million two viewers in the u.s you know something like a weekday game of like the clippers and the pacers like something that you know doesn't have a ton of playoff relevance you know only one arguably you know well-followed team like again that sort of game that you have on a tuesday night in the nba that again outside of the local markets isn't going to garner a ton of attention in china that game will get eight, 10 million viewers easily. And because of the demand and the viewership numbers that we continue to see overseas in professional sports, especially U S professional sports, media rights are only going to continue to increase, which means the team valuations are only going to continue to increase. I mean, I don't think it's crazy to think that by 2030, we'll have a $10 billion sale for an NFL team. Um, like we might eclipse that a couple of times, potentially, because we've got the uh, the Seahawks maybe sold in the not too distant future, depending on, you know, how the rest of things shake out with uh, uh, the Paul Allen, the teams owned by the Paul Allen Trust. So you've got the Seahawks and the NFL and the Portland Trailblazers and the NBA. Um, you know, we, we could easily see, I think, that $10 billion number eclipsed once or twice. And again, outside of a very small handful of people who can do that deal and only take on a billion dollars of debt and who can do that deal where you are limited as to the percentage of private equity that you're allowed to bring with you on doing that deal. I mean, we're, we're talking probably less than a dozen people <laughs> um, that, that could do that or they would even have an interest in doing that. So because of that, I think what we're going to end up having is um, number one, we're going to see, and we've already seen it with the the NBA, and now the NFL has kind of said they're going to explore the possibility too, where sovereign funds are going to have the opportunity to come in on PE deals in, into professional sports teams. And the NBA seems like it's probably going to be the first league where that happens um, with the NFL and the, MLB, you have certain political components involved that, you know, I think it will happen eventually, but it probably wouldn't be the first or even the second deal where such a situation would happen. Um, and so as a result, we're going to continue to end up in a place where we're either going to see sort of a consortium buying a team or we're going to see significant debt being used when when people are buying teams going forward and as a result we're going to see leagues have to again tweak their rules because the nfl rule it was 500 million until 2021 i believe and now it's was doubled up to a billion and you know obviously i I don't have this confirmed from a Mm -hmm. inside source or anything but seemingly from what i've seen and heard with the commander's deal that rule had to get bent (laughs) for josh harris to purchase the the washington commanders so um and that you know again that was only six billion so that number is going to continue to go up so i think sport ownership is going to have i think a pretty dramatic shift um in the coming years whether that be exclusively on the regulation side on the side of who it is that's coming in and buying these teams or some combination of the two where you know going forward, we're we're going to see some some pretty substantial
1: differences. And and isn't all that dependent on media rights? Because when when these teams have been purchased in the past, um, and and significant debt was involved. My understanding, and again, I don't have this firsthand, but my understanding was that what was leveraged primarily was pledging revenue from future media deals in regard to servicing that debt. So as long as the media money is continuing to flow, that debt service is not really a problem. But if something happens and there's a hiccup there, mm-hmm. as you point out, not many companies, excuse me, not many people, not only in the United States, but in the world really can can write that check. And and haven't we seen the sovereign funds and consortium ownership a type of ownership already occurring in um premier league soccer for example over in europe
0: yeah i mean we've got the the saudi sovereign fund owns newcastle um you know there is a it is not di- supposedly not directly connected to the qatari uh sovereign fund but a, a member of the qatari royal family is uh, attempting to purchase manchester united um you have uh, the the UAE uh, sovereign fund owns Manchester City, so you know, I mean, those are some of the some of the most recognizable clubs in the world, and PSG uh, Paris Saint Germain uh, in in France also owned by one of the uh, the sovereign funds by the by the Qatari sovereign fund, which then also raises an interesting thing in ownership. So there's a there's a rule around um, mutual club ownership or uh, if a multi-club ownership model. So uh, two teams that are owned by the same group cannot compete in the same, cannot be registered and compete in the same event, which in the United States, not a problem because we don't have events where, um, you know, like the USL plays the MLS, um, whereas over there, you have UEFA, Um, which is the regulatory entity over all of European football. Um, And they host several events, the Champions League, the Europa League, and then the Europa Conference. And in each of these three uh, tournaments, for lack of a better term, um, they bring clubs from around all of the European leagues and they're eligible to participate. That hasn't been too big of a problem, but, you know, For example, if uh, if it was ultimately deemed that Manchester United actually was being purchased by the Qatari sovereign fund and not by uh, an individual member of the Qatari royal family, and UEFA were to determine that there was substantive control over both Manchester United and PSG by the Qatari sovereign fund, then you would end up in a situation where those clubs would not be able to both register for the Champions League, which is sort of the creme de la creme of tournaments in in Europe. So, and those are two teams that are frequently, if not always, um, PSG is pretty much always in it. Manchester United used to always be in it, not quite as consistently of late. Um, but so, and that is dictated by. Uh, there was a ruling, um, which some have said is maybe outdated at this point, going back to the legal side of things. So we could end up in a world where, because the sovereign funds have so much money, and because the sovereign funds continue to attempt to uh, integrate into historical sports leagues, um, that we could end up in a world where one of the sovereign funds owns multiple clubs and then challenges the one club UA for rule. So... Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But again, that it's another way in which, because of the money that's involved, which Manchester United, owned by the Glazer family, which also owns the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, um, they pretty much exclusively were able to acquire Manchester United via debt, which again kind of shows the differences between the NFL and and the, the uh, English Premier League, wherein the Glazers um, have essentially not put in a dollar of their own money uh yet own one of the most recognizable if not the most recognizable sport property in the world um they were able to do it all through debt um you know it's it's uh th- that's crazy to imagine. i mean could you imagine if josh harris had managed to fully debt finance six billion dollars to buy the washington commanders um he probably would have maybe liked that to be an option but because of the rules of the nfl that's certainly not one <laughs>
1: Well, Jeffrey Loria kind of did that with the Marlins. You know, they basically gifted him a franchise in exchange for him giving up the rights to maintain a a, a team that was not going flies in Montreal. And and you know he he came down here, invested almost none of his own money in the Marlins, and and sold the team for over a billion dollars after he and and his mini me, David Sampson, were able to bribe and swindle their way to a new stadium.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, again, how, how times have changed, you know, but basically I guess my thesis that I'm trying to present here, if I, if I am trying to present one is, you know, the days of George Steinbrenner, you know, is the, is the Yankees. Like I think that that is going to become a thing of the past because it's simply I mean, again, with the exception of a very small handful of people, which maybe Steve Cohen is actively, you know, being the exception to the rule here, that someone is just that wealthy, (laughs) that they, it doesn't matter to them. Um, You know, so maybe Steve Cohen's the exception to the rule going forward. But I think that, again, we're going to see more like the Broncos, Um, you know, there's about a million and one people that are included in that ownership group. you know, and, and I know that it was the Waltons were the driving force, but, you know, you got a lot of people involved in that ownership group that um, are, are very public facing and very involved And same thing with the commanders. You know, you go back to the name that we'll call them the commanders for now. You've already got Magic Johnson, who's part of the ownership group, mm-hmm. saying we're we are going to look at everything, including what is arguably a really bad name.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wasn't the situation in Denver driven primarily by the fact that um um Pat Boland died and there was a big fight among his heirs in regard to who was gonna do what as far as the Broncos were concerned. And these are the sort of things, you know, that that um generally don't come to the attention of the public because when heirs fight over Let's say there's a family that owns a dozen auto dealerships and they're making millions and millions of dollars every year. That sort of thing rarely comes to the attention of the public. But when it's a a sports franchise, particularly one that is as as avidly followed as the Broncos are in Denver and that sort of thing happens, it's it's front page news.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're exactly correct. And again, it goes back to how the ownership rules are currently set up in the NFL, which is that there basically has to be a responsible party and they have to have at least 30% of the team. Um, And, you know, without that, you are in violation of the NFL's rules. And with the way that the Boylan family trust was playing out after his death, um, after the father's death with the kids, there wasn't going to be that sufficient threshold of any of the children and they weren't going to be in compliance with the NFL rules and the team, you know, with the exception of the Green Bay Packers who were grandfathered in and um, because of, of you know, their their historic nature and, and the way in which the fans had the opportunity to own part of the team um with them yeah, being the exception
1: social.
0: right <laughs> yeah with them being the exception because the same thing was happening with the tennessee titans when bud adams passed away um the adams family trust the way in which it was it was set up there was the possibility that it was going to happen there too now they were able to work it out and um amy adams strunk who's the who is the the owner now um it, you know ended up meeting the satisfactory requirements in terms of of the percentage that the team owned to fall in compliance with the nfl's rules on on team ownership so that one worked you know so you got two different examples you have one situation where the family couldn't work it out and as a result the nfl basically said you guys are going to have to sell the team um because otherwise you know, we're we're basically going to take operational control of the team away because you're not in compliance versus the adams family um not the family depicted in the television series um working things out uh with the with the tennessee titans
1: well and another interesting situation that that has occurred and is continuing to occur is in baltimore with the ownership of the orioles and and interestingly enough the the original not original but the most recent owner Peter angelos was a a very very successful attorney who you would think would have considered the effect his passing would have on the ownership structure there. So doesn't, doesn't the way that that team structure is set up in advance of an owner's death, have a great deal to do with it because uh, using the Kansas city chiefs as an example, Lamar hunt owned the team and then Mm -hmm. he died. And now his son Clark, I believe is his name. Right. um, Is the one who owns the team, but he's not going to live forever. And I have to imagine that having seen a success that his father had in terms of how that succession occurred, he must be looking into to how his heirs are going to handle it. Because otherwise they're going to be faced with the same situation in terms of having to sell the team or somehow restructure the ownership of the team.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, a slightly different example different context but you know when when jimmy haslam was going through all that he was going through with uh with pilot flying J, you know the browns moved to have his wife d become essentially the responsible party so in the event that he had served um you know prison time if if he had been found to to be criminally guilty of anything with regards to to pilot flying j um, they did move to to make that maneuver so that if it happened the NFL you know wouldn't have to get involved on on the ownership front um you know so so D is I think still to this day I don't think they ever reversed it you know D is really the the primary owner of the
1: Cleveland Browns On paper, anyway. Uh, Another situation like that happened with the Spanos family that owns the now Los Angeles Chargers. Um, Dean, I believe, was the guy's name who owned the team in San Diego um, before they moved to LA. He passed away. And I know um, there was some, you know, let's call it controversy over who was going to, you know, have the reins to control the team moving forward among the the heirs there and and they were able to come up with a solution that uh, uh, kept it from going into a, a full-scale family war um, and and kept that situation quiet. Um, and another issue I'd like to ask about Ricky, and I I'm, I'm sure that uh, the people listening would be interested in. What about additional professional teams? I saw something recently online showing that there was something like three quarters of a billion dollars that was being purposed to setting up a professional cricket league. I believe it was in India and they were hopeful of growing the sport globally because cricket is popular in other areas of the world and just India. I know it's popular in the Caribbean, for one, and obviously that got there the same way as it got to India by way of, um, of Great Britain spreading it there. Um, so it's obviously popular in England as well. Do you think there's going to be much of a market moving forward for leagues like that in regard to what, particularly what I mentioned earlier, that those expansions, if you want to call them that, are primarily fueled by the the media dollars.
0: Yeah, so actually on that panel I referenced in London, uh one of the main lawyers for the Indian Cricket League w- was also on the panel. Um and oh. she, you know, she did mention, you know, their expectation of continued expansion. Um and so and, and this was also part of what I discussed because obviously I was coming at it uh, the main reason that I was on the panel was the conversation around um Alternative models in college sports and and U.S. professional sports as well, and so whether you know whether we're talking pickleball, whether we're talking the uh, the beer pong league that's that's going, whether we're talking drone racing, whether we're talking uh, rugby sevens or other formats of rugby, whether we're talking cricket and and part of with cricket they also introduced you know a time limited version. Um, which became the most exciting product in India, um, which, you know, is the second largest market by population in the world. Um, You know, I think we're going to continue to see these ultimate alternative formats in alternative leagues and sports, because there is still a desire for people outside of those, you know, again, however many it is, 15, 20 people that can afford an NFL team or an NBA team or, And now what we're going towards an English Premier League team, there is still a significant appetite for the next threshold, next several thresholds of people in terms of overall wealth to have involvement in professional sports in some way, shape or form. So I think as a result, we're going to continue to see alternative leagues, alternative formats things like that. I mean, there's a, a professional league of of 7v7 outdoor soccer. I know that's going in Asia that's starting to gain a lot of popularity as well. So, you know, the those sorts, there's a 3v3 basketball league, I think that Baron Davis is involved in in China now. Um, you know, so th- there's uh, these sorts of alternative leagues are going to continue to pop up because again, that next those next several tiers of wealthy individuals who want to have ownership in sport, they're not just going to go away. They're not just going to say, I'm no longer interested. They're going to look for opportunities. And I think that's going to lead to innovation. That's going to lead to other leagues. That's going to lead to other sports, whether or not they're ultimately successful or not, who knows. Um, but I think we're going to see a lot more sport products going forward.
1: Well, yeah, it's all about content, isn't it? I mean, the, the happiest people on the face of the planet have to be the, 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 what are they, the producers or whatever you want to call them that are on the other side from the writers and, and actors strike right now because football season started. So that that is, is taking attention away from the fact that the scripted programs that people would be accustomed to watching are not going to be available this fall. And um, even when that strike does get settled, still, people, you know, these companies want content. There's only so many iterations of of uh, Survivor, The Bachelor, America's got disease or whatever. Uh, Dr. Pimple Popper, there's only so many. Uh, variations of those programs that, that can be put on. And it just seems that uh, sport is a never-ending source of, of these viable options. And for a wealthy but not mega, mega wealthy person who's not going to be able to write a check for an NBA or NFL or MLB franchise, getting into a professional pickleball or uh, professional team tennis. They tried to make a go of team tennis a couple of times and it hasn't happened. If someone can figure out a way to to make that work, they could get into that for a few million dollars as opposed to a billion dollars. And if it really grows and prospers, next thing you know, something that they spent uh, a couple, $3 million is now worth $300 million if it goes over big. So it, it would seem that not only is it uh advantageous from the perspective of supplying the the streaming companies with content, also the people that uh, own the teams, it gives them a viable investment opportunity. Would you not agree?
0: It does. And again, I think um as a result, if if you could th- there's so many different outlets to get your content out there. there are ways to build. It may not be, a $12 billion annual revenue league like the NFL, but you don't have to be that to be very successful. Um, and you know, the salaries also aren't what they are in the NFL where, you know, roughly 50% of that is going to go back to the players in the form of their salaries. Um, you know, so to your point, you can launch an alternative sports league for under 50 million bucks. And if you can build a sustainable revenue model, where you're making a couple hundred million a year, that's it's it, it becomes very um, successful both economically and you know from a, a consumer and a fan standpoint. I mean, we got the fan controlled football league, which has now spawned the fan controlled basketball league, which then you've got the the TBT, which is the basketball tournament, which has now spawned the soccer tournament. Uh, we've got the Kings League uh, that Gerard PK launched which now supposedly there's going to be Kings Leagues all around the globe you've got the Davis Cup in tennis you've got uh, I forget Roger Federer's tennis event um, the something cup as well um, I'm blanking on it off the top of my head that goes all around the globe right now so I mean these these alternative formats I think are, are going to uh, continue to pop up tomorrow golf is another one uh, I think going back to Steve Cohen, they just announced that Steve Cohen is going to be the owner of the uh, New York team in the golf league, which is going to be a one month format of some sort. Um, it sounds like in partnership to some extent with the PGA tour and and then TGL, which is the golf league. Um, so, you know, it, 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 I, we're just going to continue to see more and more of that. And then if there's a way for technology to play a part then that starts to span the interest or expand the interest of private equity firms that might want to get involved because now it's not a sport investment it's a consumer product investment which you know that that's how um you know like i think it's uh lightspeed ventures uh, which was a group i came across a few years ago You know, that was how they got into the fan control football league, because they viewed it as a technology consumer product as opposed to a sport product.
1: Well, look, did you ever think 20 years ago that there would be people paying to watch other people play video games? And yet esports is is very big. And that's just an example of something that started essentially out of ether, out of nothing. And, and um, I wasn't aware of it until a few years back when um, I spoke to you about finding sources of investment for some people that were trying to get into that. Um, And, and honestly, my biggest reaction to it was, you've got to be kidding me. People pay to watch other people play video games as opposed to playing video games themselves. It's one thing that you and I are not out, you know, running into each other playing football, we're not capable of doing that. But we could certainly pick up a game controller and play video games. Um it, it just it blew my mind. And colleges are giving scholarships for that. So soon enough the NC two A will get involved in fucking that up too. Um before we get too deep tried, into that Ricky I've reg- tried.
0: Uh, I know I'm sure there, there's a couple of leagues, I'll just say real quick, um, that they've tried to house themselves within um campus life. As opposed to, or student life, whatever the school calls it, as opposed to the athletic department, because then the NCA doesn't have any purview over
1: it. Oh, oh, interesting. I want to ask you one last question because I know you've got to go. Um, I know you to be a fan of and a follower of uh, sports at the University of Virginia. Well, I know that's where you grew up and everything. And um, there was a very emotional reaction last week to them beginning their football season. And I read recently that there's going to be a ceremony this weekend, correct? Um, A memorial for the players that were murdered there last year. Do you have any insight into what that's about and how all of that is going to work its way into the program in the near future and and the effect it may have
0: i don't have any personal knowledge or anything along those lines um you know my dad is an alum of the school so i was raised uva fan um on the football side and uh and basketball side but um, I mean, it's it's clearly had a significant impact on the community there, and um, certainly the athletic department has felt it uh, in in a range of ways. And you know, it does seem to be being used in a good way, um, and maybe being used isn't the right phrase, but you know, it it does it has seemed to have shown a light on. Um, you know, mental health and mental wellness and things like that for athletes. Granted, it shouldn't take something to that extent to, to have those sorts of resources available to college athletes. But unfortunately, a lot of times it does take something extreme to get those sorts of services really focused on in an athletic department. I'm glad to see that UVA has done it. Um, I hope they continue to do it. I hope that other schools continue to do it because again, this was a, a, a rather extreme example um, and a tragic example. but um, you know college athletes go through a lot all the time. <laughs> yeah. um, you know we just we've seen the reckoning at Northwestern, um, which I know very different examples, but the level of abuse and hazing that goes on, um, in colleges, it's not something that's just limited to big schools. It's not something that's just limited to division one schools by any means. It happens at the D two, the D three and the NAIA level as well. And this is where I go back around to where we started this conversation around the rights of college athletes and, um, and things like that. These are our services, uh, that need to be made available to athletes that are at a very precarious time and life in general just from an emotional yeah. standpoint yep. uh, and they're they're under just an immense amount of pressure yes. both yeah. academically yeah. speaking, athletically speaking and just generally in life. So like I said I'm I'm really what I've been most glad to see throughout all of this is how UVA has made more services and made that a focal point for their athletic department and for their athletes um, and I hope that schools continue to take these sorts of matters much more seriously than they have uh, because the athletes need it
1: well and i hope that they take advantage of the opportunity to address gun violence as well because between the the murders that took place at virginia tech and the murders that took place at university of virginia to paraphrase the fascist governor of the state i currently reside in it's almost as if uh they're trying to make virginia florida with those words of biased wisdom. Let's bring this plane into a landing. I appreciate you coming on again, Ricky.
0: And that's it for another edition of Follow the Moneyball with your host, David Sloan. To make a comment or a suggestion for a future guest, reach out to David at
1: followthemoneyball.substack.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.